Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, so whether you're joining us in person or by way of live stream, welcome to our Sunday morning gathering. Uh, for those of you less familiar with me, my name is Paul, and I serve as one of the pastors here. So let me begin by, by saying things do not always live up to our expectations. Sometimes they don't meet our expectations. Sometimes they play out a little differently. For example, some of you may have noticed some things are not meeting your expectations this morning. If you've been with us in prior weeks, you know we've been engaging a sermon series working through four songs found in the Gospel of Luke that sing about the birth of our Savior. In that time, we've explored Mary's Magnificat, Zacchaeus' song, and the song sung by the angels. As such, you were rightly expecting before someone stepped up to the pulpit to hear a passage of scripture read that engaged a song sung by a man named Simeon. I can assure you that up till yesterday, I expected the same thing too. And if you paid attention to our calendar of upcoming events included in our weekly update, you also expected to hear from Pastor Chris this morning. Again, I can assure you that up till yesterday, that's what I expected too. Pastor Chris was planning and preparing and expecting to deliver the fourth sermon in our Songs of the Savior series. But things do not always live up to our expectations. Many of you have been experiencing a variety of illnesses in recent weeks, and your pastors are not immune to such things. So I'm pinch-hitting, and we're throwing you a little curveball this morning, something unexpected. I would like to tell you that I'm the type of person who could step into preaching a sermon uh, that, that I've not really been meditating on in a pinch, but that is just not me. So, sorry not to meet your expectations this morning. Uh, there is no sermon on Simeon's song today. I was expecting to preach the next Sunday, the Sunday after Christmas, on a passage that expanded on, on, on a text that we explored last week, that examined the birth of Christ in more detail, which of course is a very appropriate sermon to meet expectations, to end cap the Advent season that would be delivered the morning after Christmas. In light of the curveball, we're going to use that text this morning. And I think, I think considering this passage Considering that we're in the week before Christmas, it will be a gift to us as well. As to what we're going to preach on next week, good question. <laughs> Let me not set your expectations up in a way that they would not be met. It will be a surprise. So, if you're anything like my family and I, you have some rituals or practices or traditions that you engage in during the holiday season. Now, one of those traditions at the Gardner House involves how we set up Christmas decorations. We, we typically do it the Saturday after Thanksgiving, but we're, we're flexible on that. What we're not flexible on is we have to play Christmas carols while we put up the decorations. And we, we definitely must do some things that are a bit impractical, like have Little Debbie Christmas cakes. And we must have eggnog, and we must have hot cocoa with whipped cream to sip on. Of course, while we're 
putting up the Christmas collateral, we all have specific decorations that surface particular memories. You know, sometimes those are memories associated with when that ornament was made and who made it. Sometimes, sometimes those memories are associated with places we vacationed because we, we get an ornament as we travel, and so that can stir up thoughts of that trip. But one of my favorite decorations, stirring all sorts of different images and pictures, is the nativity scene. I love catching a glimpse of baby Jesus surrounded by Mary and and Joseph and shepherds and wise men. I I think there is less theological rationale for for my love of that scene, and it's just more sentimental. Part of that, my, my mother, when I was growing up, she was into ceramics, and one of her prized projects was a nativity scene she completed. Man, I thought, it was, I thought it was beautiful. I liked to hold on to each piece. They were so smooth. So as we set out that nativity scene, I think about those moments. I also think about a time several years ago when there was a, a family in our church that secretly dropped off wooden blocks associated with a different aspect of the scene each night. It was so much fun trying to figure out who was doing that and, and to consider the story behind each aspect of the scene. Of course, part of the reason I enjoy the nativity scene is to think and consider the picturesque place of a birth in Bethlehem approximately 2,000 years ago. That said, things that we picture with that scene do not always live up to our expectations. The reality is some things we commonly associate with that place may not actually be true. One article I read this season was five popular misconceptions about the Christmas story. So as we revisit that biblical nativity scene this morning, we will understand that it may be different than many of us typically imagine. It may not meet or live up to our expectations. Here's apologist and author Rebecca McLaughlin. Christmas has grown to include all sorts of extra details in our popular imagination, like the idea that Jesus was born in the, in the bleak midwinter, that it was snowing at the time, or that his nativity involved a little donkey, a grumpy innkeeper, a stable, and a little drummer boy. None of this is in the Gospels. So my, my gospel community, we were playing a game of fishbowl charades last night at our, at our Christmas party, a Christmas version of those fishbowl charades. And any time the wise men came up, the person providing hints used the number three. But that number three is not found anywhere in Scripture. We get that number because of the three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Just because there were three gifts does not mean there were only three wise men. There could have been three, or 13, or 33. So feel free to be creative and add more wise men to your nativity scene. Of course, you would also need to acknowledge these wise men who traveled from the east were not likely at the site of the birth in Bethlehem. They had to make quite the journey to visit Jesus, 
So scholars estimate they visited him months and more likely two years after he was actually born. So now that we have deconstructed and deflated some of how we view this birth, if you're devastated and need to talk afterwards, you can come find me. But the reality is, taking away those popular misconceptions does not diminish the reality this baby born in Bethlehem was extraordinary and remarkable. So this, this morning I want us to consider what is reality? What, what do Christians truly believe about this baby born in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago? As we look at the Christmas story told in Luke chapter 2, it's going to be a bit repetitive to what we've talked about in prior weeks during the Songs of the Savior series. You know, a few weeks ago, Pastor Chris emphasized God brings salvation through the lowly to the lowly. Kyle Osborne reiterated something similar a few weeks ago. Last week, I emphasized how the news of the birth of Christ was a proclamation of peace to people on the periphery. This morning, as we examine that nativity scene, our big idea of what we encounter is there's a baby born outside to bring people inside. If you have a Bible, open it up to the passage read earlier, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. And as we examine that scene, we're going to reflect on what we truly learn about the birth of this baby born in Bethlehem. So let's start with verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. The first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So, so the author of the Gospel of Luke mentions there's a census taking place when someone named Quirinius was governing Syria. In our nation, the, the custom is to take a census of the people, something like every 10 years, to best determine how resources are distributed and how people should be represented at the, at the state and the national level. Scholars tell us it seems to have been the custom for something similar to happen in the nation of Israel every 14 years. Now, while referencing the, the census helps establish rationale for why a couple, why in the world a couple about to give birth would be traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem, mentioning that Quirinius was governor of Syria offers little to that end except to establish how the birth of this baby born in Bethlehem relates and connects to other historical events. To that end, it's important to know the author of this gospel is doing a bit of investigative work. Okay, let's turn back a couple of pages to how the author introduces the gospel of Luke in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And here's what he says. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. 
So it's like the author is taking a notebook and a pencil, which are antiquated tools to record before the invention of a microphone and a recording device to put together a documentary for a man named Theophilus. Now, we know very little about this individual. Maybe he's the one who funded this documentary work being completed. Maybe, maybe this individual was a Christian, or maybe he was a spiritual seeker who simply had questions about who Jesus was. Either way, Luke, this disciple and this doctor, his purpose was to build on the work of others to provide an orderly account of things that had happened. So he's interviewing eyewitnesses. He's hearing their stories. He's putting them all together. And if some documentaries today hit us in significant ways, Luke's story is a shocker. It is a biography about the life and death of a man named Jesus Christ who claims to be God. So in light of it being a documentary, Luke is connecting events that took place to a historical timeline. And he's including details that really do little to advance the overall story. He's demonstrating a knowledge of descriptive details and a depth of knowledge of the region and time that Jesus lived in to root the story in real-life events. So first thing we know to be true, this remarkable birth was real life. It isn't a myth. It isn't a made-up story. It isn't a fairy tale or fiction. Luke is detailing evidence of actual events as he establishes a biography of a man named Jesus Christ. There are real facts and figures surrounding his birth. So if you happen to be with us this morning and you identify as a non-Christian, And part of your hang-up is you just don't know about the evidence. You don't know if you can believe it. I encourage you to explore the gospel of Luke. It is a detailed documentary written to provide a spiritual seeker with confidence that there was a baby born in Bethlehem in a miraculous sort of way approximately 2,000 years ago that radically transformed the world. In light of a gospel account like Luke and all of the other evidence of the life of a man named Jesus Christ, rather than it being foolish to believe that he walked the earth 2,000 years ago, it's actually foolish not to. So that, that the baby was truly born is the first thing we know as we examine Luke chapter 2. The second thing we, we know is there are circumstances surrounding this birth that are not normal. They are abnormal. So so typically when a baby was born, she or he was born in the hometown of his or her parents. That was the case when we considered the birth of John the Baptist a couple of weeks ago. That is not the case for Jesus. So let's read verses 3 through 7 to better understand some of the abnormal circumstances of his birth. So everyone went to be registered each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. 
While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So this text brings us into the nativity scene. And it confirms this baby was not born in Nazareth, the place where this baby's parents lived. He was born outside of his hometown. The people, the family and friends normally present to celebrate the birth were not there to rejoice at this extraordinary moment. Now, the the specific location of his birth, there's a lot of conversation about. Not to shatter more of your expectations, but it may have been a stable or barn. Uh, It may have been a cave. It may have been outdoors under the stars. Or it may just have been the home of a poor family who did not have a dedicated guest room for Mary to give birth in. The CSB actually gets it right when it says there was no guest room available for them. In a lot of other translations, it said there was no room for them at the inn. In places like a poor home of a family, animals and humans very much dwelt together. So there would have been a manger near the home where Jesus would have been laid. Now the reality is that the fact that Mary and Joseph did not have a guest room available is significant. The birth of our Lord and Savior did not happen at a place you would expect for a king. Someone who was set apart by God to be Savior and Lord. It was outside such a setting. And this baby being laid in a manger stands out to, to Luke as well. He mentions that detail in verse 7. He repeats it in verse 12 and repeats it again in verse 16. The baby born in Bethlehem proclaimed to be Savior, Messiah, and Lord. As I said last week, That baby is not lying in some beautiful bassinet or cushy crib. He's lying in a feeding trough. The setting of that birth is not grand or gaudy. It's meek and modest. And so the odor where he's found, it stinks of muck and manure. Luke is making a point. This baby born in Bethlehem was born on the outside. He was born outside of his hometown, and he was born outside of a typical setting you would expect for a king. So that's the second thing we know to be true. And third, and perhaps just as significant, maybe even more significant than being born on the outside, this baby served to build a bridge with those living on the outside. For people who identify as common or ordinary, not extraordinary nor remarkable, the story of his birth is something to identify with. He was wrapped in a simple cloth. The first people to hear the news of his birth were not elite leaders in the community, but people living on the outside, shepherds. Again, we we referenced this last week. Shepherds were people who were kind of on the lowest rung of the corporate ladder, But beyond that, shepherds lived outdoors. So imagine someone being pretty gunky and grimy. They were kind of like cowboys. 
They didn't take baths very often. They lived off the land. They rarely went into town, which meant when they did go into town, they were viewed as dirty, spotted and stained. But it wasn't just their physical body that was the problem. Their spiritual soul was an issue too. These individuals very rarely made it to religious festivals. They they didn't worship very often with God's people. So they weren't just viewed as physically dirty. They were viewed as being spiritually defiled. They were seen as riffraff. So this baby was not only born on the outside, this baby was building bridges to those who lived on the outside. Since we examined so much of the shepherds being on the outside last week, I want to briefly mention this idea that this is a Savior born for those on the outside as a consistent theme described broadly by Luke as he details the entire earthly ministry of Jesus. When he gathered his 12 disciples, he didn't gather people who were rich. He didn't gather religious leaders or scholars, people on the inside. He gathered fishermen. He gathered a tax collector. He gathered riffraff, a shabby and shoddy bunch. He built bridges to people on the outside. He healed lepers. He told stories of fathers who pursued uh, one lost son, a woman who pursued one lost coin, a shepherd who pursued one lost sheep. Over and over again, Luke is telling a story of a baby born on the outside building bridges to people on the outside. One of my favorite stories involves Jesus actually having a place to stay, found in Luke chapter 19. When he enters the town of Jericho, he meets an interesting character that's told in verses uh, 2 through 10. Let's look at that. So there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord, and if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today, salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he, is, he too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. So even, even when Jesus was spending time with the rich, he was spending time with the rejected rich. Zacchaeus was the man who was the chief tax collector, despised and hated within his community because of his chosen occupation. He was a traitor. So when Jesus builds a bridge with him, people complain, he's gone to stay with a sinful man. And staying inside, he's building a bridge to those on the outside. 
He's identifying as someone who was an ally of outcasts, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What was the purpose of this baby being born on the outside, building bridges with people on the outside? He was bringing people inside, making people right with God. In the case of Zacchaeus, Jesus tells him, salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Back to the birth scene, something we explored last week was how the angels clarified the identity of this baby born in Bethlehem. Let's look at that again in verses 10 and 11. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. So that baby born in Bethlehem was born to be good news of great joy for all the people, for those who accept him as Savior, Messiah, and Lord. They are brought into something new. Jesus is bringing them inside. Now we have to grapple with something here. Do we as Christians image a Savior born on the outside who builds bridges with people on the outside? Or do we prefer to live on the inside? I heard the story this week of a family of Ohio that between the years of 2007 to 2018, after raising nine of their biological children, they took in children from other families that were struggling with addiction. Four of those kids were nephews and nieces, and two of those kids came through the foster care system. I have no idea of their religious affiliation, but this is the kind of story. When we understand the significance of the birth of Christ, we live out what it means to love those on the outside, to build bridges with people who have nothing to offer who are dirty and defiled, not, not in a sort of legalistic way that sustains our righteousness, but it is simply an overflow of our understanding of how we have been loved as outsiders by our Savior. You see, our, our actions very much reflect what we believe about God and his gospel. We follow God's commands found in Scripture, not because we understand and affirm everyone, but rather because we trust him as righteous ruler. When we reject his rule, our our actions reflect that we trust self, and we affirm how we desire to live autonomously. In the same way, the relationships that we build, the relationships that we seek to build, very much reflect our belief in the gospel. We seek out opportunities to, to spend time with people. We, when we seek to spend time with people we get from, people who give us friendship or status or affirmation, we're, we're reflecting that we are not secure in Christ. When we seek to spend our money and energy on self rather than on the, the dirty and the defiled, the refugee or the outcast or the, the outsider, we sometimes fail to recognize how generously God has given to us. 
Such actions make me wonder. Would we receive today the reign of a righteous ruler born outside to bring people inside? Would we recognize and affirm a Savior who welcomes those who are dirty and defiled? Does such a disposition reflect a faulty belief we have about the gospel and about who we are in relation to Christ? Which brings me uh, to the fourth thing we know to be true about this baby born in Bethlehem. And that is an encounter with him. Understanding the news of his birth produces a remarkable response. Let's look at verses 15 through 20. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. So as we read the response of the shepherds and Mary, we encounter how people respond to the news of the remarkable birth of this baby born in Bethlehem. The shepherds share the news of what they were told about this child. Mary treasures this news in her heart and meditates and reflects and considers what it all means. The shepherds glorify and praise God for all the things that they have seen and heard. To, to respond this way, we have to recognize the good news. There has been a baby born outside to bring people like me inside. See, there are many who see the birth of this baby. It is a good news of sorts in a sentimental sort of way. Joy to the world. Peace to people on earth. It's a good thing that someone born with the character of Jesus Christ was born to teach us what it truly means to be a good human being. Someone who really teaches the golden rule to serve others, who lays down his life as a sacrifice. But when we do not see that his birth was necessary to, to bring someone like me inside, to make me righteous, to make me right with God. It's, I'm not desperate. I don't see the beauty of what Christ has done for me. I don't identify with being as an outsider. Here's Tim Keller from his book, Hidden Christmas, explaining, explaining a bit of what, what I'm saying. We should all be amazed that we are Christians, that the great God is working in us. We should all, we, we should be just as shocked, and he's saying we should be as shocked as Mary and the shepherds, that God would give us, with our smallness and flaws, such a mighty gift. And so no Christian should ever be far from this astonishment that I, I of all people, should be loved and embraced by his grace. I would go so far as to say that this perennial note of surprise 
is a mark of anyone who understands the essence of the gospel. I think sometimes we have a less than remarkable response to this baby born in Bethlehem. Not not because we aren't Christians, but because we believe a deficient and dysfunctional view of the gospel. Such a belief exposes some faulty expectations. We expect to be a Christian because we're the type of person who makes wise decisions. Or we're the type of person who thinks rightly or acts rightly. Keller asks the question, what is Christianity? For for Christians, what is the significance of this baby born in Bethlehem? If it is simply about making us a better person, someone who goes to church and believes all the right beliefs and upholds all the right values, we will not treasure his birth. It will not produce awe and worship in our hearts, but instead more duty and less delight. But if we view what happened with the birth of this baby and how he lived as something done for you, a birth outside to build a bridge to bring people like you inside, there will be constant wonder and awe and delight. And we will testify about his birth and we will treasure all that it has done for us. See, this story about the birth of a baby born in Bethlehem, it really doesn't make sense. It is a birth for people who are weak, who are frail, who are fragile. So as we explored that nativity scene, I asked the question, what do we truly believe about this baby born in Bethlehem? My hope is not so much for you to be accurate in your theological understanding of the, mis- the, the nativity scene, to eliminate all misconceptions so that your expectations would be met in the future, or so, so that you would avoid associating three and wise men the next time you play fish, Christmas... <laughs> or, or so that you would avoid associating three and wise men the next time you play fishbowl Christmas charades. You can do that. My hope is that considering this birth more closely would lead us to kneel down before Christ and worship. This birth is about bringing people like you and I in. It is intended to bring us joy and peace and hope that we would recognize how we have been loved by the God of the universe. May we be in wonder and awe and delight of that this week and throughout the year as we reflect on the birth of our Savior. Let's pray.